Yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away. Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now, where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Oh, here we are, the future of now. So happy to be here. We have an exciting topic for you. Come on, it's been a year from you know what, 2020, the year we all want to forget and fast forward out of. What were you doing to distract? Come on, we couldn't go places. We couldn't touch and hug the people we love. But a lot of us were reading or watching TV. And what was your favorite genre? Well, I will share with you, mine was mystery, crime, thrillers. I wanted to be distracted and diverted. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I have three novelists in the mystery genre, which is a vast genre. We'll talk about that. It's got all kinds of branches and a publisher of novels as well. And our topic is the future of mystery writers. How will they keep thrilling us? And that's what we want to know. So let me give you a little background here. I discovered that the first modern detective story, and there are quotes around that, is considered to be the murders in the Rue Morgue. I'm sure all of you don't exactly have it on your shelf because it was in an 1841 April issue of Graham's Magazine, relation to me or my relatives, as far as I know. Short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Come on, you've all heard about him. The first mystery novel was Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White, 1859. It's so popular. It's still in print. I know, I know. And he also wrote The Moonstone a couple of years later, 1868, the first detective novel, and it set the standard. An enormous diamond is stolen from a Hindu temple and resurfaces at a birthday party, where in an English manner, and numerous narrators and suspects, and the story goes through superstitions and romance and humor to solve the puzzle. Oh, my. So according to Masterclass.com, let's update this a little bit. When it comes to 21st century Americans' tastes in fiction, Few genres sell better than crime, mystery, and thriller. Gripping, suspenseful, full of intrigue until the very end. We want to be shocked and surprised. They routinely top the New York Times bestseller list, and many spawn larger series, leaving enthralled readers like me eager for each next new book. When's it coming out? When's it coming out? So let me just do some definitions here. Crime novels focus on a criminal who must be apprehended. Mystery novels focus on the question of who committed a particular crime? And thriller novels focus on suspense, dread, and the fear of a future crime. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of trends before I ask my three esteemed, my four esteemed panelists. Some of my shows have three. Today, we have four. <laughs> Yay! To introduce themselves. So, CrimeRead.com predicts for 2021 a continuing golden age of women I don't have any women writers on the panel. Women writing spy fiction, a new surge of rural noir, evil twins, clones, doubles, temps, and new mothers, and the gothic gothic revival continues. Novelsuspects.com, these are real websites, predicts where digital world truly delivers is among the elite hackers competing to crack the world's most secure systems. You may work for one of those systems. And bestsciencefictionbooks.com says the mystery meets science fiction and the new blend genre will be mystery science fiction or noir science fiction or detective science fiction. So 
I have novelist John T. Ball, who is kind enough to assemble this wonderful panel. We have Matt Koss. We have Chris Wheatley. I've just met all of them except John a few minutes ago. And we have a publisher. Eddie Vincent is with us. And I'm going to talk to them about the future of mystery writers. How will they keep thrilling us? I'm Bonnie D. Graham, a very long intro, but I'm happy to be here. I had to do my homework. John T. Ball, you're up first. I'm going to put you on speaker view. You were on my my Read My Lips Cool Conversations with Creative show a couple of months ago. I was so impressed with you. I asked you to assemble a panel, and you're so kind in here today. So, John, why don't you introduce yourself? Take about three minutes. Tell everybody what you do, and what does all this mystery stuff mean to you? John, welcome. Great. Hey, thanks to be here with you again, Bonnie. Uh, it's a wonderful experience. Um, it's funny, as I was thinking of this, I thought, what caused me to get into this? And I go back to early reading as a kid, Hardy Boys, James Bond, then Robert Ludlum and The Born Identity, that entire series. And from that, I thought, you know, it's really pretty interesting in terms of mysteries, crime, thrillers, I think they explore this issue of our consciousness. Like, where are we going and what kind of crimes have taken place? And the newspaper has that as well. So I wrote a lot of screenplays, then worked on some novels as well, um, and have a book coming out with Encircle Publications in a little while. But the, the idea of um, exploring these, whether it's in a Western landscape or a city, an urban landscape or a dystopian world or now science fiction, like you alluded to, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really terrific, you know, because it presses us to move into the future and solve things. And I think you're right. We love mysteries. We do. John, does this keep you awake at night looking for new plots, for new twists and turns, new angles? This is something, oh, you keep a sticky note or you keep an iPad next to your bed and you you wake up at three in the morning and say, oh, I've got a new plot. Does this something that that consumes your brain? I'm just curious. It comes in pieces, actually. You know, yes, yes, I do have a uh, notepad by the bed and then every other mode of recording ideas I do as well, whether it's on the iPhone or there's a device called the Remarkable, which I've used as well for writing. Um, And um, all of that over time, I find that I get pieces of it. And then it's like, oh, you know what? I think there's a story here. So I I don't stand one thing. I'm probably working on several things at the same time. So while I've got, you know, these books coming out in, in the next little while, I've got two others that I'm working on. I like that. Multiple threads. Appreciate that. Thanks for answering my query there. Let's go to Matt Cost. I like your name, Matt Cost. I'm going to put you on speaker view. I want you to tell us, is that a, is that a real name or is that a gnome de plume, Matt Cost? Welcome, Matt. I just met you a few minutes ago. would love to get to know you. Please introduce yourself, Matt. Well, funny that you ask about my name because I write under two different names. I write under Matt Cost, which is my real name. Uh, and I write mysteries under that name. And I write under Matthew Langdon Cost, which is also my real name. And I write <laughs> histories under that name. So I write histories and mysteries, is, as I like to say. Um, I've long time in developing. I was in business for years and I owned a health club and I owned a video store back in the day. And I owned a mystery bookstore which is going to become the basis for my first mystery series that I'm going to write eventually. But then in the, me- in the middle there, I became a history teacher <laughs> and did that for 10 years. And that developed in me a desire to write histories. So I've written a, uh, three of those now, one on New Orleans during Reconstruction, 
that comes out in August and two that are already out, one on Joshua Chamberlain and the Civil War and one on Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. But then I decided that I really had to get back to my tribe and write mysteries, which is what I really wanted to do. Um, and In Circle Publications gave me an opportunity to do that. And I came out with a mystery series, my mainly mystery series, uh, that is based around a private detective, a PI, who is also a mystery bookstore owner mm. in the town of Brunswick, Maine. And so that mystery bookstore that I owned some 25 years ago came into play. And uh, so these are the two things in his life throughout the three, soon to be four, mainly mysteries that are in that series. And then I've also decided to move away from the mysteries, as you kind of talked about the difference between mysteries and thrillers, mm -hmm. into more of a thriller series as well, which is going to be the Clay Wolf Port Essex uh, thriller series. And the first one uh, debuts in June, and there's two more to follow that over the course of the next year as well. So that's me, histories and mysteries. I love it. Matt, thank you for the background. I have spoken with other mystery thriller crime detective novelists. Um, last year, I have a, a friend who is uh, an independent publisher, and Eddie will talk to you in a second. And she brought me some of her, her crime genre. And I noticed that some of them do come from corporate backgrounds, interestingly, Matt. One was an HR executive. One is in real estate. And they use their knowledge of people and of systems and processes from what they do or they did to as the the juice to fuel what they're writing about in their novels and i i found it absolutely interesting so thank you matt lovely to meet you eddie vincent everybody's been talking about you in circle publication so i'm going to put you on speaker view eddie vincent please introduce yourself formally to me and the audience tell us what does in circle do how did the name come about and what kinds of books you publish eddie welcome hi bonnie thank you for having me um and Circle's been around for 25 years. We started off in poetry, of all things. Hmm. Um, what happened for us was about three years ago when I was doing self, helping people self-publish, we had an author come to us and have asked us to do the editing and everything in self-publishing. We turned around and said, in five minutes, my wife and I said, we need to publish this person. And we already been working in the publishing field for a lifetime, it seemed like at the time. So we turned around and we made this person an author. And she accepted the offer. And that started the fiction side of our publishing company. And since then, we now have 50 authors. And we are very author-centric. We really try to have involved authors. Um, mystery came about because that's what we knew. We knew the mystery genre. One of our clients had just stopped their imprint and we reached out to those authors and said, hey, we're going to start a publishing company, publishing fiction. And in a nutshell, that's what we did. And it's been a great experience for the last four years. Very, very exciting from poetry to, to a completely different genre. Was that a shock and amazement to your readers, Eddie? How did they take it? Um, it is, yes, it's been a shock to some of our readers. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but we still do the poetry. 
I mean, that is a part of it. We've also, in Circle, also does literary fiction. We have done some Westerns as well. But, you know, our mainstay right at the moment is mysteries. And it's been a fabulous experience for me to get to know these authors because we've mm -hmm. always enjoyed authors. And you mentioned about women authors earlier. We mm -hmm. have two very strong thriller mystery writer authors <clears throat> that are women. Okay, so I'm going to predict that you're going to come back with your female writer, mystery writers, later in the year, and you're going to come back and do another show with me. Eddie, can I predict that to come true? Oh, that can absolutely come true. <laughs> okay, good. I just booked another show. There you go. Thank you very much. Chris Wheatley has been so patient. Chris, I said that about a fourth panelist on the show about a year ago. And when I got to the gentleman, he said, how do you know I'm patient? I'm so ready to leave. You didn't get to me soon enough. Chris Wheatley, pleasure to have you on. Would you please do us the honor of introducing yourself and why are you here? Chris, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. Thank you, for John, for organizing this. Um, I'm a crime writer from Oxford, UK. Um, Bonnie, you were mentioning before we started how you love English TV crime dramas. Yes. Of course. So I'm from Oxford, where Endeavour and Spectre Morse come from. Um, I think I grew up reading crime. I, Dashiell Hammett, Sherlock Holmes, Raymond Chandler, all the old school stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, you mentioned mysteries. People love mysteries. Uh, but when you have the, the crime element is when you have, um, you're transgressing social boundaries, social norms and social laws. And that's when it becomes really compelling if you can mm -hmm. put it together. Um, I think I, that's why we, lo we love to go to um, magic shows still because we want to be mystified and delighted. We want to see the reveal. Uh, and you add that with the crime element. I think that's what makes it so compelling. Um, I've, I really only started writing seriously four or five years ago. Uh, started with short stories, had several crime short stories published in anthologies and magazines. Uh, my debut novel is coming out this year through Encircle. And what is it about? It's uh, actually it's set in Cambridge, where I lived for a while. Uh, and it's about a private detective. Um, and it's, it's, it starts off local, but it, involve, it, it escalates into global conspiracies. It sounds intriguing. Yes, and conspiracies is a loaded word after what we've all yes. gone through. And we'll just leave that one on the table alone there. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. They're all very interesting, as are you. Now, my panelists have sent me a movie or a song quote in advance before the show. I've done my research on the, the attributions, the sources. And these quotes have absolutely nothing to do with our topic. And by the way, if you're just tuning in and watching us on live stream on Facebook, I think we're live streaming on LinkedIn. It's always a mystery to me or listening on the Voice America Business Channel. This is Technology Revolution, the Future of Now. And our topic is the future of mystery writers. How will they keep thrilling us? And that's what we're about to find out. So John Tebow is our first panelist here. John organized this wonderful panel, Matt Cost, Eddie Vincent, and Chris Wheatley. I am still Bonnie D. Graham, planned to be for the rest of the show. After that, it could be a mystery what I'll become. And now we're going to go through the quote. So John Tebow has sent us a quote from Rick Blaine, played by the inimitable Humphrey Bogart. 
Bogart in Casablanca, a 1942 American romantic drama film. And it starred Humphrey Bogart, Bogie, as a lot of people called him, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Heinrich. I'm not going to go into it, but it was set during World War II and focuses on American expat, played by Bogart, who must choose between his love for a woman and helping her and her husband, a Czech resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue his fight against the Germans. Let's just leave that there. Here's the quote. This is so famous. It stands on its own. Here's looking at you, kid. I thought you were talking to me, John Tebow. So <laughs> thank you very much, John. What does this have to do with our topic today? John, talk to me. You know, the thing that intrigues me about that movie, and I've seen it quite a few times, is that we look at it in terms of the story of what happens with these characters. But I, I went to UCLA film school, and after that, we start digging into things a different way. This is the story of America not getting into the Second World War. The reticent Rick with the cafe in Casablanca is just like, I'm not going to get involved. Yes, I was involved with France. So America was involved with France for this long relationship. And then when it comes down to the Vichy and the Germans coming in, he's like, hey, I'm not going to do it. And in a sense, when he says, here's looking at you, kid, he's saying, hey, I really loved you, you know, mm-hmm. when we were in France with, you know, Ingrid. And in reality, though, it's, it's really reluctant America coming into the Second World War, which is why I think that whole book transcends, you know, what's going on. And it's not until, you know, Pearl Harbor that we actually jumped in. So it's fascinating on lots of levels. And I think that's why it really holds up. Thank you very much. I just like the way it sounds. Here's looking at you, kid. I just Something about kid, it's just such an endearing term. Some people would think it's insulting, but I find it very endearing. So thank you very much. And Matt Costa sent us a quote from another movie, a classic, The Maltese Falcon, 1941 American film noir, directed and scripted by John Huston in his directorial debut. And the novel was from a 1930 novel by Dashiell Hammett. Starring again Humphrey Bogart as private investigator Sam Spade and Mary Astor was his femme fatale client. It had other big names like Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre in it. It was nominated for three Academy Awards. I have to tell you, it was considered, it is considered one of the greatest films of all time, one of the first 25 selected by the Library of Congress for the film registry as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant or all of the above. Here is the quote Matt has selected from The Maltese Falcon. We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believe you're $200. I mean, you paid us more than if you had been telling the truth and enough more to make it all right. I have no idea what accent I was using. So Matt, forgive me. Matt, rescue me here. What does this have to do with our topic? (laughs) Well, uh, as I write two different series, one on mysteries and one is a thriller, but they're both based with a PI, a private investigator. And, you know, you talked earlier about the origins of mysteries going back to Edgar Allan Poe. But I think the quintessential PI of all time is Sam Spade here Mm -hmm. in the Maltese Falcon, whether it be in the movie or in the book by Dashiell Hammett. And it's, I think that my characters in all six of my mystery thriller books uh, at one time referenced Sam Spade uh, in each of the books because he's such an important factor in basically who they are. 
And the idea behind the PI is that they have their own morality. And it's not necessarily about the law, but it's about what they consider to be right and wrong. Sam Spade, it's loyalty more than anything. Loyalty to friends, to family, to coworkers, and that's a very important thing. And I think that comes out in this book movie, but as well, this line really typifies a lot of what's really important in uh, mystery thrillers, and that's the concepts of power, fear, money, and sex. And it's so much so that my first three mainly mysteries are called mainly power, mainly fear, and mainly money. And uh, perhaps mainly sex is coming. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> Interesting. You've certainly outlined that for us. Chris Wheatley raised his hand. Chris, talk to us. What do you want to say? Oh, just coming in there on that magnificent choice of uh, Dashiell Hammett Maltese film. <laughs> Uh, am I right in thinking you might know more than me? Didn't Dashiell Hammett himself work as a private detective as a, for the Pinkertons? Um, he was a Pinkerton, I believe, for a short period of time, or for a few years. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for the multi-level appreciated quote, Matt. I'm looking at Eddie Vincent's quote. Eddie sent something that's controversial in itself because it, it's been paraphrased a number of times. It's from the more, much more modern film, Apollo 13 from 1995. The quote is very famous between Apollo 13 astronaut John Jack Swigert and the NASA Mission Control Houston. We all know where this one is going during the Apollo 13 spaceflight in 1970 as the astronauts communicate their discovery of the explosion that crippled their spacecraft. So the quote is, I'm just going to leave the quote. It's been said many different ways, but the one we're using today is, Houston, we have a problem. Eddie, talk to me. <laughs> well, that, that quote is my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, you have to tell us more, please. <laughs> oh, well, it, you know, publishing is a fun world to be in, but it, on a daily basis, we're putting out fires. We're trying to find out, you know, what's going on. I will get emails or texts from authors, from uh, printers, you know, we have a problem. It's my job to figure out how that problem can be fixed. And it can go anywhere from, you know, missing, <clears throat> missing pages in a book, like my someone receives a book and they're missing pages, like how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, things like, I ordered a book three months ago, why don't I have my book? I mean, that doesn't, I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but it does happen. Uh, I had one person say, I received a book and I do my books print on demand. So I don't actually see the books right up front. Uh -huh. So one of my clients got back to me and said, I received, the book, but the cover was right, but the inside was another publisher's book. So there's problems that have to be addressed on a daily basis that I just, I put out fires. That's my life. <laughs> Houston, Eddie Vincent has a problem. Wasn't there a famous snafu, Eddie, with a book by Dr. Ruth? Many years ago, didn't a book get published with the wrong chapter or a wrong header or something, and they had to recall thousands, tens of thousands? Oh, do you remember uh, that? I, I do. I vaguely remember it. But that type of thing can happen so easily. I mean, y you get a book out in print, and then you find things. And it's like, oh, my, 
What do I do now? And with print on demand, it's easy. You just re-upload the file and you correct it. And that's the beauty about the technology today is you can make those changes on the fly. And we do on occasions. We have to. Interesting. I I have my Monday night show, which used to, well, read my lips before I was focusing on creatives. I had my author send me hard copy books and I would read them. I'd take about three hours on a Friday afternoon before the show, used to be Fridays, and I would speed read through novels, through self-help books, whatever it was. And then the advent of Publish on Demand, self-publishing, Eddie, you know, a couple of years ago that happened. And I had about a thousand books on my bookshelf because to me, having a hard copy book is almost a religious experience. I don't throw them out. I might give them away and tell people don't give them back, but I don't put them in the trash. And when I moved from New York to Durham three years ago, I had to clean out because I was paying by the pound for my moving, including my mother's apartment. She'd passed away and mine and a baby grand piano. And you don't want to know what was in that truck. It was two households to come into this. Most people downsize at my stage of life. I upsized. I doubled my living space. But the point is I gave a friend who was a tennis player, a casual tennis player in Queens, New York. I said, help me get rid of these books. So he took about 200 books, put them in the trunk of his car, drove to his tennis place in public courts in Queens, New York, in in the, the borough of Queens in the city of New York. And he opened the trunk and said, hey, free books. He said within 12 minutes, every book had been taken by people who hopefully appreciated them. And that, the rest, a couple left over, he gave them to the public library. So there, thank you very much, Eddie. Appreciate it. Chris, I didn't forget you. Chris has sent us a song quote, our first song quote today. And it's from a beautiful song, Moon River, performed by Audrey Hepburn in the 1961 lovely movie, Breakfast at Tiffany's, composed by the iconic Henry Mancini, lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And the song was responsible for relaunching Johnny Mercer's career career as a songwriter, Chris, because in the mid-50s, rock and roll replaced jazz standards, and nobody wanted Johnny Mercer's songs, and then Moon River came out. It won the 1962 Grammy for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and it did a beautiful thing for his career. So here's the quote, Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday beautiful. I won't cry. Chris Wheatley, he knows the backstory to why I'm in tears, but Chris Wheatley, rescue me. Go ahead. Talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as you say, it's a beautiful song um, from a wonderful movie. But I I think for me, the song, it it conjures the um, spirit of adventure and and pathos, which lie at the heart of all great fiction. you know, two drifters off to see the world and uh, I'm crossing you in style someday. I think that gets to the heart of uh, what drives good fiction. Um, for me, because my other job is uh, I work as a music journalist. So I'll often, um, when I'm writing, if I want to get into a particular mood, I will select pieces of music which match the scene or, or the spirit I'm trying to get across. Um, and Moon River is one of my standbys. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Lovely work you all did in finding interesting quotes. John, we're going to go with your prediction number one. This is the predictions round. My panelists have each sent me four predictions. Some may overlap. Some may be very unique and interesting. Panelists, if you have anything you want to say after the person who owns the prediction explains it, I call it unpacking like on the news, Air quotes, Bonnie, do it right. There we go. Unpack it. Just raise your hand and I will ask you for your input. Otherwise, I'll just keep moving along and I'll put in the chat where we're going to go next. So let's start with prediction number one from John Tebow. Prediction is mysteries and thrillers will become more complex and international 
but sustain deep personal stories that exploit and uncover the protagonist's weakness. Oh, my, we've got weakness in there. That's a new term for the <laughs> John raised his eyebrows. John, talk to me. Go ahead. You know, maybe I'm responding to some of the things I've read and seen recently, but I've been watching Blacklist. And the complexity uh-huh. of what's going on there and the range for a television show of going all over the world with this character. And actually, I think the main character, Reddington, is pretty fascinating from a writer's standpoint. I mean, great quotes. If you've seen the show, yep. you know, he talks and goes into, oh, the time I was in France in the 17th century, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is. It's fascinating. You know, you don't see that typically where you have a very simple detective, for instance, just hunting down a case, looking for the murderer, et cetera. And I think what, what's happening is we're looking for more complex things because we're more complex creatures. And to me, that becomes more intriguing. And my wife says the same thing. It's like, you never know what's going on. And I think that's the whole point of a thriller or mystery. You know, you're trying to figure out what is going on. And if you're engaged, you're going to stay with it. Thank you very much. If you're engaged, that's really the whole thing, isn't it? Do you, let, let me just go around the table. Thank you for that, John. Let me just go around the table. Do you think the first page is key to getting people to read or the first opening scene in if a book gets translated into a TV show or a movie? Is that first page compelling? Are we tired of it was a dark and stormy night and she heard noises from the back of the house and the trees moved in a way they'd never moved before? Are we tired of that? Is that going to keep people engaged? John, let me just ask you, and then we'll go quickly around the table. Is the first page, the pa- the initial part of that page-turning thriller experience, what do you think, that engagement? I believe it is. I actually am listening to Masterclass, watching Masterclass, and I heard mm. James Patterson talk about this. He said the first sentence is critical, and then he goes through this whole thing on, like, here is the first sentence of, and he picks a bunch of different novels, and then he goes, here's the first paragraph, and then here's the first chapter. And I started looking at books that way, thinking, ah, very interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. making, having like an oxymoron in your first sentence where you go, oh, I must read the rest of this paragraph and the rest of this chapter, you know? Um, and that, I think, again, it's, it, it, it engages you because you don't know what's coming next. And so you want to continue. The intrigue, the mystery, the curiosity. Matt, agree or disagree? What about that first page? Critical? Uh, well, I certainly agree with the first sentence. I think in this day and age, we're working in smaller sound bites. And if you can get somebody to read the first sentence, maybe as much as the first paragraph, then they say, ah, I like this, you know, then they'll give you more than a, more than a chapter probably to get into it uh, if they like that first paragraph. And they might give you a quarter to half of the book and decide at that point. So I think that first paragraph is absolutely crucial. Interesting. Eddie, publisher, what do you see? I think the first paragraph is vitally important, especially when we're trying to decide if we want to pick up a title or not, or an author. You know, we, it has to be intriguing for us to go further and then read that next chapter or two. So yes, I think it's very important. And Chris Wheatley, thoughts? Yeah, I think it also has been. Um, Eddie touched on it here, but um, just from a practical viewpoint as writers, to get a publisher to pick you up, you, you, that they ah. see work that you really do need to hook right from the first sentence and first paragraph. 
interesting. You need to hook the publisher, not before you get to the reader, the publisher. Thank you. Very, very interesting. Uh, When I read, I look for style. I look for the intrigue, the mystery. I look for a little bit of character definition. I look for something new and fresh. I also look for well-edited because I do a lot of business writing. And if I see mistakes, errors, boo-boo, something that doesn't make sense, a wrong pronoun, a typo, something that it's not just the mystery, but the, the, the miss mystery. Go ahead, Chris. No, um, I was just going to say there are, there are exceptions, but they tend to come from established authors who, whose name alone will probably sell a book. Um, but I can certainly think of examples of books where um, they have very oblique openings or take their time to get going. But uh, I think they tend to be sort of old school, older established yeah. writers. Thank you very much. And I've noticed, I will just add this in the, I was telling uh, all of you before we started the show that I'm now subscribing to so many British thriller TV channels. My, my, my monthly to Amazon Prime has quadrupled in the past couple of weeks, but BritBox, Acorn TV, and now PBS Masterpiece. But I've noticed a new style of this genre is that they will introduce four, five, or six characters or groups of characters and scenes that are completely unrelated. And you're looking at somebody talking to somebody over a cup of tea, and then you're looking at somebody walking in the woods, and you're looking at somebody catching a bus, and somebody in a conversation with their child, and you have no idea how they're going to pull this together. And I've seen this on a couple of shows. Uh, Endeavor, I'm on season two now on uh, PBS Masterpiece, started to do this where you're seeing all these colorful scenes, and the mystery is to the viewer and or the reader, the mystery is what the world do these have to do and where is the story going? So that to me is an intriguing, I call it a new style because I've just been introduced to that visually. Anybody want to make a comment on that about the disparate? Chris, you go. Yeah, I think it comes back to what you're saying about the element of mystery. And um, it's like a conjuring trick, really. You hook you, you in because you want to see how do these disparate strands tie in. I think it's a good... Um, as long as you don't overuse it, I think it's a very good tool. Agree. John, you want to say something? Yeah, I, I have two comments. I, you got to shut me up. But <laughs> oh, go. Yeah, two comments. One is that this is, again, in screenwriting, they do the same thing. And in novel writing, they do it too. You have an A story of what's going to go on. Main character, goal, mm-hmm. opponent. Okay. And then you have a B story where you have a secondary character, the same thing. And so what you're talking about is where they have an A, a B, a C, and a D character. Yes. Then you're going to take them like a quilt and weave them all together. And if you can do it cleverly and it all works out, it's fantastic. And then one other comment, which is a Margaret Atwood quote, which I really like, is, you know, because you you talk about the style of writing, too. Mm -hmm. She talks about there's two kinds of writing, Baroque and plain song. And I thought, wow, how thoughtful that is for her to say that, because in, in a sense, I like the kind of Hemingway, plain song, very clear, descriptive narrative, right? And I actually have another friend, uh, a friend of mine, his daughter has become a famous novelist, and she writes these fairy tale books in the most Baroque style, and she's a really successful published writer. And when I read it, it's hard for me to get through it because it's a, it's a style that just goes lots of adjectives and adverbs and fanciful mm-hmm. stuff. It's very, again, very kind of old school Baroque, you know, nothing wrong with it, just a different style. Different style. Matt or Eddie, anything you want to add to this conversation? You both good? Uh, Eddie, I guess Matt. I'm good. You know, I would say that I, I 
feel very important that you need at least three stories going on in a mystery. Mm-hmm. And I try and have at least three. And the best is when they all tie together and don't end up separately, I think. You know, you could have three different stories going on. Uh, John talked about the blacklist a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, I was going to reference that a little later in the talk. But as well, I think that that's pretty neat because it has the story that goes through each episode and they come to, you know, fulfillment at the end of each episode. But then there's approximately, you know, 150 episodes and throughout all of those is a larger storyline that weaves its way through. And that's pretty fascinating, I think. Fascinating is a good word for that. Chris, you had some other comment you want to add? Yeah, just echoing on uh, what John was saying about styles there. I forget where the quote quote comes from but um you've got elements you've got great writing great characters great plot and it's said that if you've got two of those then you've got a great book um something like virginia wolf's orlando i know it's not crime it doesn't have a great plot or any much of a plot at all but it's so beautifully written and the character's so strong that it carries the book Thank you very much. All good. Good discussion around the table. Matt Cost, I'm looking at your prediction number one. This is interesting. You predict thriller novels will be written in installments, made audible, and listened to as podcasts within the next few years. Oh, my. Matt, talk to me. Well, you know, that kind of ties into the conversation we'll, we're just having, and I'll weave my way back around to that. But, uh, you know, at the very start, that's pretty much how the PI novel got started with the pulp fiction and some of the stories you were talking about. It came out in the pulp magazines, you know, so there'd be a weekly or a monthly uh, ongoing story that people would catch up with. Uh, even back in the 90s, Stephen King wrote The Green Mile in six different installments and issued them in book form. So I'm thinking that as we go forward into the future, and audiobooks has been out for, uh, you know, quite some years now, mm-hmm. but it's becoming more and more popular. And for instance, my book, Mainly Power, is coming out on audio uh, in April, this next month coming up. And I think that there is a future where the narrator of that on a, maybe it's a weekly, maybe it's five days mm-hmm. a week, will do an episode from that prior to it coming out that will be aired on a podcast where people can listen to it while they work out or work in the yard or go for a jog. And maybe it's a Monday through Friday thing and it's 45 minutes long like the blacklist was. And you go for your jog at four o'clock every day and listen to it. But much like any Netflix series, at the conclusion, if you didn't listen to it, you can binge it all at once as you want or watch, listen to a few episodes. But I think that that's the way that many readers will go. Interesting, Matt. It, it's harking back the idea of the old serial radio shows, right? Yeah. That's, that's it. We're going back to audio. Interesting. We, we like visuals. Chris, you had a comment. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. It's just interesting how, yeah, as you were saying, history goes around in circles because you go back even to um, Charles Dickens' novels. They're, they're all initially serialized in newspapers in bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and the original Poe story I mentioned, the first mist was a short story. It wasn't even wasn't even a big deal. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to move on and get Eddie's. For Eddie, I'm going to combine your prediction one and two because I think they go together. Okay, so forgive me for that. Eddie predicts the pandemic will ever change, forever change the way people are buying thrillers and books in general. And then he predicts number two, paperbacks will rebound in the future. Go ahead, Eddie, talk to me. Well, the pandemic brought uh, a new way of looking and selling books. So I do believe that buying books will change forever and that um, paperbacks were never going to go away. People looked at paperback as ebooks taking over paperbacks. What people mm-hmm. like to have a physical copy in their hand. And a lot of people will, will buy multiple formats. They'll buy the ebook and then they'll go back and buy the paperback or hardcover. So that will definitely be done. And I do think that because of the pandemic, bookstores and readers have found a new way of connecting so that they don't physically have to go to the store. So it has definitely changed the way we are buying books. Now, Amazon, obviously, the big guns, you know, everybody buys through Amazon. That's, that's a known fact. But now the independent small publisher, uh, small bookstores are getting into the act and are really starting to buy to reach out through social media and things like that to get sales. But I also see a future where publishers will become more active in selling without having to be distributed so that more they'll be driving traffic to their websites to get more sales direct. All they have to do is get the distribution set up. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you from the publisher side. Appreciate that. Chris Wheatley, I'm looking at prediction number one. You say international locations will continue to grow in popularity, especially given our recent predicament. I'll put that in air quotes. Chris, take two minutes to unpack this for us. Go ahead. Uh, Thank you. I I won't say too much because in some ways it's echoing what John's already pointed out here. But I think so, especially when, you know, travel's limited. I can see the appeal rising. I think it has been for a while now. Um, last night I sat down and looked through some best-selling crime novels that came out in the last couple of years. And we've had plenty of international authors being translated into English. Um, and last year we had authors from, I'm just looking down at my list, Colombia, South Korea, Argentina and Japan all, all had um, entries from crime authors on the best-selling lists over here. I can see that continuing. Thank you very much. Let's go to round two of predictions. I'm just going to pick and choose here. I've already put one in the chat for John. John, number two prediction is as thrillers migrate from novel and screenplay to streaming, they will be shorter in alignment with our attention span. Think in the name of the show is Shit's Creek in comedy. John, I had to be careful saying that because it's spelled differently, but it sounds the same. So <laughs> nobody gets S-C-H-I-T-T apostrophe S. There you go. That that show just annoyed the heck out of me. I couldn't watch more than two or three episodes. The, the kids were just, it just graded on me. So I, I gave it up. And I also used to be a big fan of Red List. And somehow it just wore, I think when they killed off the, the, the female lead in the beginning or close to the first season, it just upset me. And I understand she came back so go ahead john talk to me (laughs) 
switched actresses, though. I, I, I agree with you. I prefer the first actress. Yes. Okay. Um, Schitt's Creek was an interesting one for me because I, many people said, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. They said this to me years ago and I never got into it. And then finally it's like, okay, I'll take a look and thought, eh, whatever. But I actually, again, from a technical standpoint, I appreciated the fact that they took normally what we looked at as just straight comedy, right? Which was always done in one singular set. It was a half hour comedy in one set that television would do. And they expanded it and said, we're not going to do one set. We're going to do a town. And we're not going to just do these characters. We're going to open it up a little bit to allow them to travel and do more things. So I think the idea of going from a close, and again, Hollywood was like that too. You have a closed set where you just do one thing in one place because it's cheap to do it that way. You expand it to a town, it gets more expensive. And what we do in novels and books is we take you all over the world. In fact, we take you anywhere your imagination wants to go. So... <clears throat> If we can say, look, we're going to take you to outer space, inside your mind, with any character, anywhere. And I think that's the role of the novelist. Just be imaginative, be future focused, and come up with this crazy stuff. I mean, I'm amazed by some of the stuff I see thinking, you can't get away with that. But I see it on television, and I'm seeing it in novels now thinking, wow, they're really, really, really pushing it, you know. Um, so the idea of taking it expanding it, but still having different kind of formats that are consumable, like Matt said, with audio, I think it's a great way to go. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, I did want to make a comment. We were talking about the length of time before and 45-minute episodes. Endeavor, the ones I've been watching are an hour and 28 minutes. Mm -hmm. So they're basically saying, I'm not going to give you that break because MI5 and some of the other, I think Line of Duty, no, Line of Duty was one continuous plot for the whole season. There's one, oh, I watched The Bletchley Circle. If you haven't seen that, delightful. They didn't do enough of that about the women who were code breakers in World War II, first the Brits and then some on the American side. Then they get together in Bletchley Circle. But the first season only had four episodes. The second only had three. They waited nine years, came back to San Francisco, and I think there are only six. And it left me wanting more because because I loved the characters. Very, very interesting. But they seem to do, you had to watch two 45-minute episodes to get to the end of that crime, the solution to that crime. And with Endeavor, you start and you know you're going to be watching for an hour and a half and they will complete the solution to that crime. So they've, in a way, they've changed the genre. I just want to leave that, but we're looking at limited 10 minutes left and I want to see, make sure we can go into another set of predictions here. So Matt Cost. So Matt says, thrillers will lean away from international espionage. We just talked about that and political power plays and toward a race to save cultural identity. Wow, Matt, what are we talking about here? Well, you know, I should probably be careful because, you know, it's a very touchy, sensitive topic. Mm -hmm. But for too long, uh, writers have been dominated by older white males. And that has started to change and has a lot further to go. And I wholeheartedly support that because I think the diversity in that is going to be fantastic. And I think as more diverse culturally uh, writers get out there, uh, we'll start to see a race to save that cultural identity. And the thriller or the mystery will be to protect that. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be interviewing an author on a new book that he has coming out, C.M. Wendelbow. And, you know, his protagonist is Manny Tano, who's a uh, 
FBI, but he travels between the two worlds of being a Native American and being mm-hmm. a uh, FBI uh, operative in, let's call it, the white world. And he has to navigate that uh, and retain his cultural heritage and save it. And I think we'll see more and more writers as we expand and become more diverse as a group protecting and expanding and exploring that cultural identity. Thank you. Very, very well put. Yes, we see that in a lot of shows now. And it's it's touchy, but it's who who the world is right now, I think. So thank you, Matt. The way we're we're heading. Eddie Vincent, I'm looking at prediction number four. This is interesting. Zoom author readings will be the future of book sales as author branding increases. Now, Eddie, I have to preface this by saying recently some of the authors a couple of years ago have come on my shows have done their own two to three minute YouTube video with a teaser, a trailer, if you will, for their novel. And I've, I didn't see a lot of those, but I saw a few where they were doing their own book marketing. So Eddie, talk to us. What does this all mean? Eddie Vincent. Well, because of the pandemic, again, we figured out another way of reaching our audience because we can't do in person. Yes. So authors, publishers have reached out to bookstores, to libraries to do these Zoom events. And we get I don't know, 20, 30 people to watch the Zoom event, pretty much like what we're doing today, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a reading. And sometimes it's a panel. Sometimes you have multiple authors on there. So it is a way of getting out there. And for the bookstores, they can be selling at the same time. They can have a link right to their online presence to be selling. So I think that it's only going to grow um, and it's going to – enhance the way someone gets their name out there. It's just one other way. You mentioned book trailers. Book trailers have been around for a while, but they're not well used. Uh-huh. So more and more people are doing book trailers. They can put them up on their websites. It is all about getting the author out there. It's more about getting the author's name out there than it is the publisher's name. So we push our authors really strong. Thank you. Very interesting. Good Good look back at what I experienced. I appreciate that. Chris Wheatley, I'm looking at the clock. We have six minutes left. Let's see if we can cram in just a couple more predictions. Chris, prediction number two, you say authors will continue to blur the lines between genres. Which genres are we blurring? The detective, the mystery, the noir, expanding the definition of a crime story. Chris, talk to me. Two minutes. Max, go. Yeah, I think so. In, in some ways, many authors already have done that, but I think... Um, it's almost, there's so much choice out there now. I think we're going to see more niche uh, elements in there. People, you don't tell straightforward crime stories or tell them in a different way or add in different elements. Um, we've seen this, I think, in film, television and music where it's much more of a mix and match approach. Uh, I think that appeals to people. Um, sort of echoes back to what John was saying about people pushing the envelopes. I think almost... There's so much choice now. You almost have to do that to to get noticed, perhaps. Uh, I think it's going to be much less rigid definitions of crime novels. Thank you very much. Very, And I, I don't know if the public really knows the differences. So blending genres is interesting because if we're not aware, we don't know that you're bending and blending them. We're just enjoying the mystery of what you're talking about. John, I'm looking at prediction number four. You say we will see more main characters who are diverse, quirky, 
yet very accomplished, which implies the way you wrote this, John, that diverse and quirky can't be accomplished, and yet they will be. So talk to me about that. Go ahead, John. Yeah. I can't think of a specific character, but I go to what Matt just alluded to, that, you know, if you have a certain type of person who is, you know, writing, and you're not going to necessarily just write about yourself and your friends, you're going to start doing other things. And I really encourage, and I, you know, I, I like the idea that we might have people from other continents and other countries and other classes talking about these things. And once they get up to speed and educated, they're going to create these characters. And I think that anyone in the field now should be able to do that anyway. And so instead of just classic character doing blah, 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 it's like, let's have them do crazy stuff and have new people with all kinds of mixes of things because it just, you see that in science fiction now and it's just like, wow, that's really weird. It's just, it's a lot of fun though. You know, it just, again, it tests your brain. I like that. We all want our brains to be tested, especially I think we're all over 25 or 30. So we're looking for brain testing. Yes. I speak for myself, but for the group. Last prediction, Matt Cost, I should have done this one first. This is fabulous. He says writers will be replaced by artificial intelligence. We call that AI algorithms beginning in the next five years. Is that starting at the end of 2021 or 22? Or are we looking way out at the late 20s, the, the end of the roaring 20s? Matt, talk to me. You got about a minute and a half. Go ahead. Well, I think that I posed the prediction slightly wrong because we will not be replaced as writers, but we will be infringed upon as writers because uh, much like, you know, fast food and frozen TV dinners and packaged items such as like that has been forced onto the population to believe that it's good. I think that uh, computer algorithms will produce and spit out things that, you know, some of the population will like. For the rest of us authors, we'll retain a niche because we will be unique, we'll be creative, and we'll, uh, above all, have flaws, which makes us human, and that's what we all really are. So the flaws is what will keep us writers going. Thank you very much. The flaws will keep writers going. John, let's have a round of applause for John. John, you assembled a wonderful panel. Everybody is so engaging and interesting. I'm so glad you invited Eddie as the publisher side, as the the professional getting the books out in so many different ways. Chris, I've enjoyed your comments. Matt, how lovely to meet you. Thanks for stacking up your books in the background. John, you did a wonderful job. And Eddie, I'm going to hold you to, I'm going to send you a date to bring me female mystery writers. Somebody else mentioned, if anybody else knows, I have one minute to close. A female mystery writer. I love Eddie to come with four on the panel. So Eddie, I'll let you. I'll let you figure that out. Easy. I'm going to send you a date because I want to keep this going. I have so very much enjoyed speaking with you. And I think we're on LinkedIn. I don't know, but I know we're live streaming to Facebook. I never know. It's a mystery. What can I say? So I want to say everybody say thank you to Aaron, my engineer extraordinaire at Voice America World Talk Radio, the business channel. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in, whether you're listening, whether you're watching. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is Technology Revolution, the future of now. And remember, if somebody says to you, hmm, the future is already here. I want you to wag your finger at them in their face, whether it's virtual or real or over the phone and say, that's not true. That was yesterday's future. Today's future hasn't happened yet. And we're all going to do our best to make it a better one. Everybody wave. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. 
Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now. 